Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. This is Tom Duncan, your host. And this is Dana Duncan, your co-host. Tonight we bring you the first of hopefully many episodes of uh, this particular podcast. If you've listened to the prologue, you already understand kind of the rough outline of the show. But uh, as we're going along, we will obviously fill you in for context uh, if you haven't gone back to listen to that one. So without um, going too much further, um, we're going to kind of just give some setup here. So first off, um, just to give you the, uh, for those uninformed, let's say, we're going to go through... um, Let's just start at the beginning. Um, Raiders of yeah, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the 1981 classic by uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, produced by George Lucas and Lucasfilm, one of two main franchises. Obviously, the other being Star Wars for uh, Lucasfilm, um, starring Harrison Ford, um, Karen Allen, and Paul Freeman. Um, known as uh, the original Indiana Jones films before it was Indiana Jones and uh, the other three films. Obviously, he precedes all of the titles. Um, Just to give a description, if you have not yet seen the film, um, before... A renowned archaeologist and expert in the occult, Dr. Indiana Jones, is hired by the U.S. government to find the Ark of the Covenant, which is believed to still hold the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, agents of Hitler are also after the Ark. Indy and his ex-flame Marion escape from various close scrapes in a quest that takes them from Nepal to Cairo. Um, without giving too much away. Now, that being said, we probably will have at some point here uh, quite a few different spoilers to uh, circle back to through the course of the episode. So, um, we will try and give you a little bit of a heads up as things go along, just discussing things and make it that way, but hopefully the uh, teaser in advance of the episode will make you go and watch the film yourself uh, before listening to this discussion. So um, this is going not going to be a spoiler-free zone. We are going to um, go pretty quickly here. but um, It's almost a 30-year-old film, so I don't know uh, 1981, many... and it's almost 2021. That okay, would be 39. 40-year-old film. I know you have a hard time sometimes remembering your own age, but, you know, let's let's give credit its due. So, that being said, uh, this movie came out when you were 18. Um, when was the first time that you saw this? At the movie theater. Oh, you did go to the original screen. Yes, I did. Okay. Um, what would be your first and initial thoughts on this movie and maybe just re-watching it now? Um, first thing is, is that it's entertaining, it's fun, it's well done, and you can just see by watching it all of the requisite parts that you would expect from a, a movie that will continue on for as long as movies are shown. I mean, there's nothing, it's timeless because it's a period piece, it has villains, it has good guys, it has excitement, it has chases. And there's no wonder this movie is probably dripping with money associated with what it's made. Well, I mean, that's quite an obvious. I mean, obviously, for most of these franchise films, um, they circle back and, you know, just the fact that they have the sequels made and um, resold in different formats, they're constantly getting new forms of revenue. 
just as a fill-in today, I'm not sure whether you were aware of this, but uh, they did announce um, Indiana Jones 5 today, but Spielberg is actually stepping away from the directorial chair this time, um, and it looks like uh, they are actually in touch with James Mangold of uh, Walk the Line, Ford versus Ferrari, and Logan fame um, to take over as the helm. Uh, Harrison Ford is still attached. Uh, he did recently say, I read a different article yesterday, um, ironically so, that said that he was uh, really trying to make sure that they uh, had everything right before they were going to take care of things. So I don't know when the principal filming or photography is supposed to be done. Uh, right now, the release date is set for June of next year, 2021. But um, we'll try and circle back around to that a little bit. So um, that being said... Um, and I'm going to have to remember to uh, turn off my um, buzz capability or my vibrate as I go along. I had that in the epilogue a little bit, or not epilogue, prologue uh, episode where you could kind of hear that. Uh, there might be also a little bit of barking in the background, um, thanks to uh, your uh, dogs. But um, So um, just principled thoughts. Um, it seems quite evident to me that the best tropes for all Lucas films. Um, I don't know who thought of the original principal idea for Indiana Jones, but um, is very much traipsing on the World War II classic heroism type of paradigm. Um, specifically, you know, even if you look through Star Wars, there's a big, bad, evil force and a good underbelling underdog rising to meet it. Um, kind of the, you know, two um, principal forces against each other, the allies, the Axis type of things. In this scenario, the Empire versus the Rebellion, and in this one, you know, uh, Indiana Jones basically against the Third Reich. This film is really meant to cause children and teens to want to go to the films with their parents, and this is why. When I was a small child, my dad would always tell stories about Saturdays going to the movies. It was a nickel, and you could basically go, and they would do newsreels, cartoons, shorts, feature, second film. That was where the B film came from. You could be there most of Saturday. This film is meant to be the serial-type films that were the shorts that led into the feature films. So this is designed to get baby boomers into the theaters to watch films because they're going to think of this in the same like of the whether it was Buck Rogers or um, uh, Hopalong Cassidy or Roy Rogers. It was a serial film. That's the way it's designed. It's made to look like a serial film. If you ever have a chance to watch a serial film, you'll see that the stylistic integrity of this film is designed to look like that. Uh, I suppose, if if just in thinking about it now and kind of how the cuts are done um, as far as some of the editing, I don't know if, uh, just because I don't have the same experience, if I would come at it from that angle. Um, I w now, as far as, um, you know, just um, storyline goes, it, it follows kind of the hero's journey type of arc in a lot of the same mythological stories. Um, 
dealing with a little bit different in the, the adventure type trope. Um, I guess from a historical perspective, and we can kind of, we have a few categories we've got to grade out on here, but, um, you know, as far as legacy or history, um, this is the first film that I'm really aware of, um, of kind of the hero or adventure hero archetype. I mean, there have been some things that have come after that, kind of like National Treasure. Um, for anyone that does video games, the Uncharted video games are kind of like that, that kind of um, uh, rugged adventurer that um, goes out to find some lost antiquity of some variety. Um, but this is the first one that I can really remember. Well, it depends on what you're talking about for an archetype, because... You can go back and there's a whole series of films where they were more serial type of films, more, you know, you can even go back to the days of Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce doing Sherlock Holmes. And yeah, but that's more of the mystery genre effect. It's not was... really the, the same adventure genre that I think some of this has created. Like, don't get me wrong. There's something like the treasure of the Sierra Madre, but that's that's more of a negative. That's not creating a certain heroism that is Indiana Jones. But even night, or if you watch the later ones, and I'm not talking the original Sherlock Holmes films from the 30s that were more tied directly to the stories of Arthur Conan Doyle. I'm talking about the ones that were more later towards the 40, or late 30s, early 40s, where Sherlock Holmes is fighting the Nazis. And, uh, and it's more of an intrigue and more um, him taking on uh, things, more action than mystery. And if you watch those later films, it starts to develop towards that angle. Well, I'm certainly not, you know, saying that this is the first, like, action character. I'm saying the adventure type of archetype, and that has been kind of copied a few different times. Um, you know, as far as some of maybe the novelty, which, again, it's another category we'll grade out on and cover, but, um, you know, I, I just... Well, this is really taking the archetype of the Western hero, the lone man... Sure. Against okay. all odds, this is you know whether you call it Buck or whether you call it uh, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, uh, Hopalong Cassidy, whoever. This is that, but changed into a more modern time frame. Indiana Jones. Yeah, exercises, but it's taking place in 1936. I understand, but it's still more recent than the uh, old West of the 1870s and 80s. Um, I mean, both characters are lone. They are uh, they they come up with or ingenious ways of handling situations. There's always a girl involved. They're trying to save. Uh, they basically do it alone against not just one, but an entire gang led by an arch nemesis who's leading the alternative side or the 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 the. Uh, the villains. Well, it's meant to be the face of pure evil, and what's more evil in our, you know, American understanding of history than the Nazis, you know. And I, 
that being said, it does resonate and make sense with me, having listened to some stuff on Spielberg before, you know, that one of his favorite directors is John Ford, commonly known for most of his Western films. And you're putting a lead star who his most notable claim to fame to this point had been in Lucasfilms, but um, notably as the kind of Western archetype character Han Solo for the first two Star Wars films by this point. Yes, and that's exactly it. I think, and, and people get the whole idea that we, that a Western is a type of film by itself. There are various generations and, and distinctions between various Westerns. Ultimately, John Ford is always the same basic premise, which is individualist who is faced with overwhelming odds, who has a or a duty or a responsibility or a task that he has to undertake, he ends up trying to not only undertake and complete the task, but to save those around in the periphery of the thing, whether it be the girl or the neighbors or the town, and uh, achieves his goal uh, through just his own ingenuity, hard work, and bravado. So, but in that same sense, I would say this is closer to a Rio Bravo type um, Western hero heroism, where they win out in the end, get the girl type of situation, than it is like his, it, John Ford's The Searchers, with both movies, which we'll, at some point we'll be covering, but um, where you get the good triumphs over evil in the end type of situation. But even even Rio Bravo, he had a team. I mean, John Wayne had a team. He had Dean Martin, he had uh, Walter Brennan, and he had uh, Ricky Nelson. So they were all misfits for various reasons, but uh, he had a team. This but I would individual. argue this maybe more than some of the other films in um, the notable, like Temple of Doom, he has Short Round and he has, um, I can't remember her name right offhand, but... Um, both of them is hit part of his team, and then um, in uh, late or Raider or excuse me, the Last Crusade, he's got his dad played by Sean Connery, and he's got um, Sala, and he's got uh, Brody, and all of these other characters. In this one, he does have a little bit of help from Sala, and also from the ship captain, and from Marion, but he's probably more alone than he has in other films. True, but if you're comparing it again to the um, on this, uh, Rio Bravo is not a uh, John Ford film. It's no. Howard Hank or Hawks, but Howard Hawks, when he did westerns, was so close to John Ford as far as stylistic integrity. It's you know it's difficult to tell the difference. At least I find. But even in there, I mean, the scene where John Wayne's telling Ward Bond and Rio Bravo, you know, when he says, "That's all you've got." No, that's what I've got. You know, it's him acknowledging the situation. It was clearly a collaboration because John Wayne is several times got saved by Dean Martin. He got saved by Walter Brennan. He even got saved by Angie Dickinson at some point in time and to some degree. Whereas you look at this film, Indiana Jones, almost every aspect, there's only the one scene where... Um, Karen Allen is in, they're in the, the single wing plane after the 
ark is taken from them and they're going to take it back to Germany. She's in the single wing plane shooting the machine gun. That's the only scene that you can honestly say that made a difference in the outcome that Indiana Jones had. Otherwise, it was almost entirely him being responsible for the outcome or the action and the result in each scene of the film. I can argue that there are actually several different pieces. So Sala trying to get him out of the well of the souls, um, and uh, she beats a guy over the head in the early bar scene, um, as well as um, hands him a bottle of whiskey in order to hit one guy that's attacking him. So there is some assistive nature in all of this. Um, but again, he is probably that archetype. So wrapping this back around a little bit, um, and we've kind of put this in the historical or perspective a little bit, um, the two main people that come out of this um, is probably one of the greatest generalist film directors that we've ever had, Steven Spielberg, who's covered you know everything from the Holocaust to sci-fi multiple times over, to fantasy, to westerns, to you know, just general fiction um, and action sequencing. Um, I guess my question would be, where do we kind of put this generally as some of his best films? I, that's kind of like picking between Beatles songs somewhat, but because uh, he's got so many great ones. But I have to probably, I don't know. There, did Spielberg do a Western? Um, directly? I don't remember offhand. I mean, if we look through his filmography, we might be able to find it um, immediately. But he's got kind of um, heist, chase, um, one in kind of Catch Me If You Can, and one we'll be revealing it at some other point. Um, but um, I don't think anything directly outside of this. And again, he's covered four different films with this particular franchise. So maybe this is his homage, if you will. Um, personally, I, you'd start with the one he obviously won best direct and, uh, best picture for in Schindler's as being his, probably his best film. Um, then you can also take the place of his biggest blockbuster with Jaws. Um, but outside of that, you know, where do we put this on some of his filmography list? That would be, I mean, you've got E.T. in there. Um, you've got some of the other Indiana Jones films. I don't think any of the other Indiana Jones films are as good as this one. Uh, personally, I would put this number one with Last Crusade 2, Temple of Doom 3, and we're not even going to talk about Crystal Skull. Yeah. Well, if you, if you look back, and I'm just going through. First of all, I would say I really think Schindler's List was just an absolute masterpiece. But for that matter, I also think Saving Private Ryan was a masterpiece. Oh, I had forgotten that. Yeah, that's got to probably be above this one. So that's the thing. You start stacking some of these together, and does this even make his top five? Probably not because of that very reason. Now, just add to this the simple fact, right? I lived through this period, and... I will tell you that... That's nothing to brag about. The impact that Jaws had on society in general. I mean, after Jaws came out, 
people did not go to the beaches. I, know. I mean, the beaches in Atlantic City, for example, were just barren for a while. And it affected Atlantic City, and it affected all, you know, the beaches around Florida. I mean, it was a big deal. At the, the time that it came out, it was the box office record for highest domestic gross, only to be topped two years later by Star Wars. But yeah, a lot of people saw the movie. And it's not just that. It's the fact that the movie was done so incredibly well. The only problem I have with Jaws is the final scene with Roy Sharder shooting the oxygen tank inside the the shark. Okay, that's but, a little un. Or that's we'll, still we'll is even get to this. But there are several different pieces to, um, you know, in similarly, this movie has a weird ending to it that's kind of you know incredible and ridiculous. So I would put that. But this film is supposed to be that way. Because it takes after the serial aspect of it, which from the 40s sure. is, you know, so it's supposed to be somewhat uh, unbelievable, somewhat over the top. So, again, circling back, um, the other main star being Harrison Ford, and where does this place in his filmography... I know there are a lot of people that pretty, pretty much, first and foremost, identify him as Han Solo, but... I don't even know if that is his most notable character. This is the one where he is front and center. He is leading all of the action and doing everything else, where Star Wars is more ensemble, but it's also taking on more of the life of Luke Skywalker. So if I were to argue, I would say this is probably his greatest film. It could be. His best acting job? Well, I know you uh... love The Fugitive. Yeah, but that's not even his best acting job. I, I want to say that it was, what was the name of the film? I think it was like something about Henry where it's a guy who is in a coma and, and wakes up. That one, Witness, was another one that he did that was really well done. Uh, it just wasn't Air Force One. Well, to be honest, Harrison Ford hasn't had to really, and I don't mean this to be derogatory, he just really hasn't had to act. He's been in movies where, to some extent, if you've watched interviews, he becomes or he basically portrays an, an extension of himself. Now, I know that the old adage is, is and this was something that Burt Reynolds used to tell, uh, Spencer Tracy told him once that if anybody thinks you're acting, you're overacting. So Spencer Tracy always presented every role as himself, and he told Burt Reynolds to do the same. And so Burt Reynolds. And to some extent you have the same situation with a lot of actors now who seem to be playing basically the same part, which is themselves in that part. John Wayne. Um, I know you have that problem with, like, Jack Nicholson. Yes. I, I just, I don't quite see that. To me, like, DiCaprio is the most, um, where he just becomes his role of the, some of the well, modern day ones. But I think to some extent the role becomes him. And I think that's the thing that you find with it's most of these. interesting argument. That instead of, the, instead of the role, they becoming the role, they produce or pull the role towards them and make the role a reflection or a portion of their own personality. Okay. 
So, uh, if we were to pose the que question on legacy, um, category 1 through 10, um, on the rubric grading scale, how would you say that this legacy grades out? Now, I don't want this to be like the NBA dunk contest, where you only have, like, 5 through 10, so then you get all these 50-point dunks and there's no nuance. So, let's try and be as honest as we can with this, but take your shot at it. Well, it depends, again, on how you... From a historical perspective, are we talking about as far as impact or how well No, because impact and significance uh, are a different category, and it's classicness or, you know, how well does it age, it's timelessness is another category. So we're just simply looking at legacy. Well, let's just put it this way. I have yet to see anybody try to emulate it, which I find interesting. Because everything in Hollywood is about copycat. I mean, there's a reason why studios are bringing back old TV shows for for movies. Because they're afraid to spend a lot of money on something that's untested. So if it was a popular TV show, probably be a popular movie. So that way we're safe. You've got an Indiana Jones criteria here. You could easily create a new character, somewhat different, that you know that if you set up the genre close or similar, you'd find that there'd be some following. People would go to see it, but I don't see it. Well, and that's where I find, you know, there are only a few different directors that if they approach something would be given carte blanche. Like Christopher Nolan's um, one of the, pretty much the only director currently that he puts out a movie every three years and it becomes an event in itself that, you know, Warner Brothers is willing to spend $350 million like they are on Tenet coming out this summer in order to do that because they know they're going to make it back because his name attached to anything is going to put asses in the seat. So, but there's also a problem. Like, every pitch I hear um, somebody make, you know, that's the cliche in Hollywood is, um, so for this film... Um, it's a Western type, think of, you know, X movie with um, a little bit of this. And it's always compared against something else because people aren't imaginative enough to think of a new idea. Well, true. I mean, I just got, or just uh, was thinking about this today. Somebody gave a trivia question that Lauren Michaels, when he pitched Saturday Night Live to NBC, pitched it as... American version of Monty Python's Flying Circus. The Flying Circus predates SNL? Yes, by five years. Okay. Six years, actually. 75 for SNL. I think uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus came on in 69 and had started to develop a, an American following, especially in public broadcasting, who was re-showing the BBC shows. Anyway, the point being is... is I understand where you're saying that there's got to be some reference for everything, but still. Well, all right. So since you haven't put a number on it yet, I'm just going to offer one. I would put it somewhere between a 7 and an 8, just because I, I don't think this is one of the immediate films that, I mean, if it's not even in Spielberg's top five, you know, where is it going to end up ranking? I understand Spielberg's got quite a few of these and probably more than most directors, but... You know, that does have to weigh against it. But then on top of it, uh, I don't know. It's a classic for sure, and it appears on a lot of different lists. 
but is it one of those that if you only had you know five or six films to show somebody uh, on a desert island and that's their entire lifetime are they going to do that no maybe when we get to the rewatchability i think that adds into it but i'm going to say yeah. probably about let's give it a seven on at least for what my argument is i would probably go simply because there's so many there are so many films that have so much more to say this is a fun film but it's really not something that really has a major impact on society in general or on people's emotions or how people perceive things. So, you know, as an entertainment value, a good film with entertainment value, I would give no higher than a six. All right, so splitting the difference between you and I, we'll put it at a 6.5 just for the grading scale at home. Uh, moving on to um, kind of the novelty of this. So, uh, again, we've kind of just brushed around the edges of it. Um, I would say it's still a fairly novel film, just, you know, predating your comment from earlier, but that um, specifically, nobody's really tried to copy it in the same vein. I know there are some offshoot series and some other things um, that have tried to hit, like I mentioned on the Uncharted series, which they're going to try and make into a movie, but you know most video games made into a movie don't work. But uh, also the two National Treasure films kind of took off of this trope. But we're still clamoring for an Indiana Jones 5 because there's really nothing like it. True. Um, now, that being said, the singular solo um, action hero, um, you know... You had, when was the original uh, First Blood? 1980, fall of 82. Okay, so this one, that would have been even after this. And I don't know if you could say Rocky is per, say, a action hero. Um, I do know that it usher, or, um, ushers in um, some of the more singular action hero type of um, era, and I, this is one of the early cursor ones of that. Not necessarily um, in the same vein, but, I mean, the 80s were littered with these, you know, ending with somewhat of being um, the action star hero. So, so you have quite a few of these, and you even still have a little bit of an offshoot every time there's a new Bond film or... Um, you know, a Mission Impossible thing. Because even you look at some of the singular action hero type stuff, the early Connery movies are still very different from this one. Whereas I would make Indiana Jones similar to kind of how Tom Cruise does his um, Ethan Hunt role from Mission Impossible. And you can kind of see the same lineage lines. Yeah. But even that was taken from TV. So and well, really, sure, but... really, I think if you're talking about a serial issues something that's you know where there's a character who's developing over time and takes on this individualistic role and whatever you're finding that more on stream television shows whether it's on netflix or amazon or whatever hulu um whatever i think that's what you're finding these now you're not going to hollywood because the cost associated with filming them versus the box office doesn't necessarily pay. So I don't see, think you're going to necessarily see a large 
uh, investment by movie studios in these type of things. Now, with that said, Kenneth Branagh playing Hercule Poirot in, you know, there is a potential there where that's the same type of... But that's the mystery thing. genre. I don't know if I, I'd fit that. The adventure action hero type of set... Um, we're not seeing as many of those. It's kind of become more of the anti-hero era um, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. The, well, the anti-hero started in the 60s. With the oh, I understand, like, but like the, like the prevalence... The and... Dozen and Kelly's Heroes. But really, you could almost say that this this is... Well, I, uh, um, Schwarzenegger and, and the, uh, the, the truth... Terminator films... Are not that far off. No, and again, I that's why I'm saying this is kind of an era of the '80s. That type of like, you know, solo action hero star type of thing. But this is more where they're heroic the whole time. Even in the fanfare of um, John Williams's brilliant score, you know, da da da, always trying to be that you know action star, and he's the heroic type that it plays the music every time he does something that's like you know, indelible or um, noteworthy. Um, but, so as far as um, trying to go on the novelty score, though, I still have to place this fairly high on my list. I'd probably, I'm going to go with maybe like a nine. I would go between eight and nine. So we'll we'll call it a, a straight nine on that one then, and just um, sink that out. Now, um, you know, just continuing along here, um, the significance impact. I don't know. Some of this is borne out by the legacy piece, and I do think that it does have a significance or an impact just simply for the franchise film industry. Again. You know, franchise filming was not um, one of uh, the bigger things at this point. I mean, this is 1981. You basically had a couple of different film series where, um, you know, Star Wars had just had what I argue to be probably the most important sequel ever made. But, uh, you know, other than that, The Godfather Part Two was the only other major thing that I can think of offhand. Jaws 2. Jaws 2 was already before this? Yes. Okay. So, but you're getting kind terrible. of the original, you know, franchise um, type of se sequencing um, I mean, early was, on in this, but... I mean, it got to the point where basically, the, I think they did Jaws 3, and it was, here, Roy Scheider gets on a boat, collects a check, <laughs> they blow up something, next film. Um, well... To be argued, that's kind of how they're still doing franchise filming, but you know that's that's enough what, argument. The, uh, uh, Fast and Furious is a well. To be fair, the Fast and the Furious thing they come they add some new big star name, and this next one is going to be John Cena, and they do some even bigger stunt. No, if you really want to see something where they expand the Fast and Furious, add a big star that has absolutely nothing to do with action. Do Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> Let's see them make a film that people will go and see with Gilbert Gottfried in there. They already did. It's called Aladdin. No, I'm talking about 
Fast and Furious with Gilbert Gottfried. No. Or Joe Pesci. Although, at this point in time, Joe Pesci cannot be fast or furious. No. Maybe furious, but never fast. But he can be some governmental official that shows up kind of like how um, uh, Kurt Russell has been in like the last two of them. Yeah, but Kurt Russell's still badass, even though he's like 74. Okay, but at some point, that's going to even age poorly, because Clint Eastwood was an action star until he started hiking his pants past his nipples. Well, that's true. (laughs) All right, so anyway, but, uh, so classicness. Um, Just a big question, um, you know, that we're going to make a staple of the show, but was this movie made too early, too late, or just on time? On time, as I said, this was supposed to... This was supposed to trigger the um, this is the nostalgic aspect of the baby boomers. When baby boomers started or stopped going to films, that was what this was supposed to do: was to bring back that nostalgia that could draw them back to the theaters. I would argue that too, but it's my theory on period piece films. So anytime that you have a period piece that has some uh, le- or level of uh, being able to have some historical perspective more than maybe like five to ten years, um, then you're going to be able to give it a little bit more credence where it kind of um, is almost a watered down somewhat version of history at times. Um, or either that or showing it for all of its ugliness. And so you can kind of... Um, see it for exactly what it was. And so by adding that, that it really wouldn't have made um, a difference what era it was made in. Um, Now, I mean, getting to some of this, there are some small parts of this that don't age well for me. Um, There's that particular scene where uh, Belloc is in um, the tent or whatever, and he hands her the dress and then kind of watches her undress. That's kind of a creepy moment, you know, after the Me Too era now, that's like, yeah, okay, we can understand it, but it, you know, that could be a small bit that's cut from the film in a modern setting. Um, And some of the special effects don't age well for me, but as far as just, you know, the classicness of this, it's gotta be up there. Yes. I mean, I I, I agree with both points, but I mean, it, again, it's, it's an, a period piece, so I, I think it does age well. It's just... Yeah, the the only thing that, and again, as far as the special effects, and it comes to what I find to be, uh, this will be another staple eventually of the show, but what is the most indelible moment? It's the final scene. Well, well okay, the like second or third to final scene, but basically the pinnacle scene, the plot point at the end. They open up the Ark of the Covenant and, you know, there's nothing inside. Then all of a sudden there's some spooky mystery and you've got these ghosts popping up. And the ghosts look like shit now. I mean, just terrible. And then they turn on it and it's supposed to be this, like, really, um, like, scary situation kind of thing that's breathed into this. But... Reminded me of Casper. Okay. Well, but... That's... Not scary or intimidating. Well, no, because we've had such modern, you know, even um, taking place a few years after this, you know, when he did like E.T., where the effects were just that much better, um, 
you know, if this movie had been done even five years later, I think the effects hold up a little bit better than that. I mean, this was just some kind of primitive stuff that I wonder if they should almost just recut it with just a little bit new sequencing just to make it a little bit better. But if that loses a little bit of sting for some of the, like, um, old guard classic people, um, I mean, the rest of this is pretty well practically shot. Um, most of the stuff in this is all practical effects and whatever else, except for that one sequence. And it's just like, the CGI is terrible. But you can put this anal or put that analogy to anything. I mean, uh, video games. Putting Babe Ruth against modern-day pitching uh, is just absurd because he was a creation of the time he was. And so, really, this film is based on, is a, a result of the time it existed. You sure. Can't, you can't just go, well, the CGI was terrible, so I'm going to give it discount. For its time frame, it was good. And that's what you have to base it on because, to some extent, they're modifying script and they're um, changing the, the method of filming based on the available CGI. It would probably be a completely different film if they would have had better CGI. Yeah, but again, I didn't want it to be CGI heavy. That's, that one sequence is my only complaint for the majority of the film. Um, everything else is practically shot, and so it, it's fine. And I frankly think you could have done a more practical effect um, aspect of that shot and had it work maybe even a little bit better. But, you know, they chose to go in this kind of more ghoulish way that it, you know, in hindsight. Now, I'm not comparing it against, like, the original low-budget bullshit of the original Star Trek or anything. But, you know, it's, it is what it is. That's, like, the only thing. And if that's the only thing that's not sitting well for me as far as classicness, you know, you got to give this at least an 8, if not a 9. Probably an 8. All right, so we can probably sit on a, a hard eight. Um, so did we grade out the significance or impact? I thought we had that kind of lower. I would probably say a six or seven at best. I think six is probably pre pretty good um, as far as that, but we can, again, kind of shoot the difference on... Um, some six. of that go, okay, so six for the, um, significance impact. And, um, we only have one big category left to kind of grade the rubric on, um, which, you know, is kind of simple. It's rewatchability. And you and I both let off the film by basically saying, this is one that you can just watch over and over. It's fun, it's entertaining, it's light, it's, um... You know, it, it, like a lot of different Spielberg films, it's just one that you can pop in and have no problem picking it up at any place. I mean, this is the definition of a rewatchable, like, cable, old-time, like, cable film. There are certain films, and, and for whatever reason, period pieces tend to be that way. For example, one of my favorite films is The Sting. And, uh, you know, it's set in the 1930s, so of course... You, it doesn't matter when you watch it, the film is the same. It holds up. So, you know, I know that that's partly a... a um, I think it was Roger Ebert who suggested that 
that the James Bond films should be done as a period piece. That they should all be based in the 60s when spies and and the Soviet Union was the was the enemy and such should be done that way because there it would always be classic. But just tying it in again, this film film specifically, where do we have it? I'd say an eight and a half to nine. I gotta give it a straight ten. You know, as far as the rewatchability scale, it's just it's on that high a bar. And some of these are you know, going to get a little bit lower that are just difficult watches. Um, like, they have a bigger... Well, yeah, and, and I can understand your point, but here's the thing. This is a film that, if it's on today, I'm not necessarily going to rewatch it in two months. And that's the standard you have to do for the rewatchability. It's a film that, whenever it's on, you'll sit and watch it. That's my standard. Um... You know, it's great to watch it every two or three years, but more than that, it's boring to do because you have you know exactly what's going to take place without it. I mean, when I rewatched the film this time, even though I've seen it probably a dozen times, there were certain things that I didn't remember the sequence and what took place, so it was entertaining. Now, if you told me next week I have to rewatch the film again, I'd go, eh, that's okay. And so that's why I can't give it a 10. So you're giving it a 9 or an 8? I'd say 8.5. All right. So splitting the difference on my straight 10, because I don't have some of the same problems. I could rewatch it with that. And I guess, yes, it would get old if like I was rewatching it constantly. But could I come back to this in two months and be just as entertained? Yes. So I guess it becomes a 9.25. Um, in the rewatchability scale, just between the two of us. Um, and uh, one of the things we'll probably later introduce, just because this is one of the first ones, is the notion of, I think, about every you know three to six months, we can kind of hit a um, revisit type of thing, kind of like they used to do on the old Mythbusters thing. So um, the only other two categories to add in are the objective scores. So just to hit on both of those... So the audience score for this one, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is 96%. So that's going to be 9.6 points. Um, so throw that in on top of it. And then we have the um, standard categories. Now, uh, I will just try and explain this. I know I explained it in the prologue, but just kind of going along with this. So this was um, nominated for seven different technical awards, Um as part of it, it was not nominated for any acting awards, which, you know, that's understandable. There isn't any great, like, you know, iconic um, acting per se. I mean, yes, Ford does inhabit the character and he becomes Indiana Jones, but I wouldn't say that, like, this is, and you even mentioned it, it's not one of his great acting roles. Um, Spielberg was nominated for Best Director, so that's going to get two points. You got a one point apiece for all of the seven different technical categories. And it was nominated for Best Picture. Um, so uh, all told, that already is 12 points. Then you look on it, and this uh, appeared on the AFI list. It appeared on the other four lists that we've got, or five, excuse me, five other lists. We've got six uh, primary ones that we'll be using as whether it appears on that for an additional four points. So it gets... Um, 
oh, let's do the math on that one. That's 16 extra points um, all told just for the recognition score. So uh, let me do some quick math. Um, 6.5, uh, 6, 12 and a half, uh, 18.25. Now, let me look here once. And that comes out to a total score of 73.35. It's obviously going to top our best um, of the list so far as our number one movie overall. And if you want to keep track at home, uh, our wonderful listening audience, um, you uh, can visit um, my personal website, which will be attached in the description to this episode, um, just for an update on that. And I will try and publish that along with the uh, um, review of... Uh, uh, how this is going to go along. I w obviously would encourage you to listen to this as more of the review of this film as opposed to uh, anything else. Now, um, just getting to some of the um, primary categories here. So, best performance. Uh, this can be for director, actor, um, technician, or the like. Uh, well, who would be your best performance of the film? There's certain nuances that Harrison Ford brought to the role. The fact that he had that sly smile throughout the film, the look of realization that he brought to it, I would say probably is an impact he had the biggest. Yeah, I'm I mean, we've already established that there are really two major stars out of this thing, and one of them we already said it wasn't in, likely in his top five, so it's got to be Ford. Best performance of the film, at least to me. Just, you know, there's nothing more icon iconic than his whole uh, demeanor, the way he plays the character. He just is Indiana Jones. Um, best scene for you? Um, boy. Well, I'll give you my... So we already went through, and I said the most indelible moment is that ending sequence when they open up the arc. Uh, but um, the best scene for me is the opening scene. Um, just the way that they um, shot it, produced it, and the rest. I mean, Harrison Ford's face isn't seen for probably the good first three minutes of the film, where they're just kind of leading you through the jungle. But, I mean, you look at it, and the things that just alone come up in that particular realm, um, you have... Uh, his uh, or the introduction of him with the fedora and the leather jacket. You get the introduction to the bullwhip. Um, you get the uh, hero and the villain both in the same sequence. You get this um, him escaping danger by going through the um, iconic like obstacle course that was trying to get this golden idol thing. You get them in random South America hunting this thing. It basically immerses you without having to give you any exposition whatsoever. I mean, it's a classic stroke of genius filmmaking that I don't think many people can pull off, save for one of the great masters, Steven Spielberg. Actually, I'm going to say one of my favorite scenes is kind of, it's a classic, but it has absolutely no meaning except one. And that's the scene where the guy... Uh, it, it, they're in the marketplace and they're going back and forth and there's the uh, fighting and whatever 
and then the guy comes up with the knife and he starts twirling around and Indiana Jones just pulls out his gun and shoots him. To me, that film, that just summarizes the film. This film is not taking itself too seriously. Well, you think about all of the action sequencing, like, and there are some great action set pieces, but uh, almost all of them have some level of almost stooge-like comedic action sequencing. You know, the Harrison Ford is not going to beat up the big Nazi dude. Instead, he's going to somehow luck out and get the airplane propeller to tear him to shreds. Or, you know, any of the other things in where he narrowly escapes by just sheer luck of what's going on. Yeah. So, um, I, I understand. And for those that don't know, that whole uh, bringing the gun to a knife fight... Um, situation actually is one of the great ad libs of all time because Harrison Ford was sick for sh uh, shooting that day, and so instead of trying to sword fight the guy, he just did that, and obviously um, it worked out. Um, I can't remember who said it. I think you looked it up the other night when we were uh, starting to watch this together, but um, a film is a sequence of happy accidents, and I don't think there's a better happy accident than that. Probably not. Although Midnight Cowboy and, um, you know, well, sure, we're walking but, here. Yes, there are some of the indelible moments of film are all ad lib because similarly, Travis Bickle talking into a mirror, and pretty much the only thing that anybody knows from the film, even if they have no idea what Taxi Driver is, is that sequence, and that's all De Niro ad libbing in the moment. So, um, the uh, best line to you. Boy. So, I'm going to give you a couple of nominees just off the top. Um, why is the floor moving? Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Asps. Very dangerous. You go first. That's got to be up there, just from the comedic timing of yeah. some of that. Um, and uh, uh, so, I will... Um, why, Dr. Jones, Why? Are, whatever are you doing in such a nasty place? Why don't you come on down here and I'll show you. Thank you, my friend, but I think we're all very comfortable up here. Um, I mean, it's just kind of some of these quippy pieces. Uh, another one. Uh, Dr. Jones, again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away, from the opening sequence, and you thought I'd given up. You chose the wrong friends. This time it will cost you. Too bad the Hovitos don't know you the way I do, Belloc. Yes, too bad. You could warn them if you only spoke Hovitos. Yes. Now, my personal vote is not one of the ones, uh, the whole snakes line ends up being in like the AFI's top quotes, but um, my personal one um, is a little bit different. Um, and let me see if I can just find it. Jones, do you realize what the arc is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God, and it's within my reach. You want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. I've got nothing better to do. Okay. Any other nominees that strike out to you? No, uh, to me there just wasn't any, you know, iconic lines that just last forever. My runner-up was actually going to be uh, this... Get us a transport to England, boat, plane, anything. Meet me in Cairo. I'm going after that truck. How? 
I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. I mean, that's that's the entire Indiana Jones franchise. Yeah. So, um, the only other thing I have as far as um, pieces that we're going to create as uh, sections for the show um, is uh, that uh, what doesn't make sense to you um, and I know we only have a couple of minutes left. Apparently, the um, full time you can do is a full hour. We don't have permission to do any longer than that. I'm just going to say it, and we're, we'll move on quickly. But um, how the hell does Indiana Jones that know that closing their eyes is the thing that they have to do to save them in the last sequence of the movie? It, it makes no sense to me. It still makes no sense to me. They just open the thing up, and they're fine, and then all of a sudden... Just close your eyes and hold them tight. Because the, when Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be destroyed, uh, Saul's wife was not or, uh, supposed to look back. Yeah, but you have to bring in a lot of biblical knowledge in order to do that. There's nothing referenced in the film. Doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Enough, You're he had assuming... knowledge. He had enough knowledge that he'd go, just don't look. Okay, he does, but the audience doesn't. You're assuming the audience has a Judeo-Christian background. That just doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Well, he knew enough, so that's all that matters, and you just trust him. I, I mean, just, I guess it's... He just exudes. Trust me. But that that whole thing, it just it, it sits on me poorly. Uh, I don't know. Did you have anything particular that, like... Just doesn't make sense to you. Um. No, not really. I mean, there's right. a certain farcical aspect to it, from the Nazi who's got the medallion burned into his hand that they use as the basis for starting the search and all that. You know, I mean, come on. But anyway. Yeah, I know, and it also has one of those like classic movie fake death, uh, fake outs. But you know, otherwise. Uh, you know, I think there's only one question left at the end of this, and we'll try and make this quick, but, um, do you think this is going to be in the top 100 when we're all done with this? There's just so many great films that have had so much more impact on society, thought, and film. I would say no. I think it's going to be, just because of how we've kind of structured the show, and we may end up having to revisit some of these early ones just because we don't think these are going to be uh, great. But um, So I'm just going to say that I think it will be by the end of it. I don't know how close it's going to be in the, to the top 100, but I think it might be. So... Well, I wish we could chat more, uh, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Um, we will be back again next week. Same um, greatest movie of all time podcast time. Same greatest movie of podcast channel. Um, you can hopefully uh, find us on Spotify. Uh, we've been trying to upload to iTunes on this first one. And, uh, and hopefully several of the other podcast apps wherever you can find us. Um, leave a comment, a rating, or a review. We would love to hear from you. Um, and maybe uh, you too can eventually uh, come on and guest host with us. We're going to be trying to bring in a few others as we go along. Um, otherwise, next week we'll be trying to cover the Alfred Hitchcock classic, North by Northwest. Uh, we'll see you then. This podcast was written, recorded, and hosted by Tom Duncan. 
All benefits and proceeds go to that effect.